Exactly 10 years ago, one of the most heinous crimes occurred in the ongoing battle with terror in Indonesia. Uh, one morning 10 years ago, a group of Muslim militants who were wearing masks attacked three schoolgirls as they were on their way to Christian school that morning. They beheaded all three of those girls, and they cast their lifeless bodies into a ditch, only to be discovered later by the people that came across that gruesome scene. Uh, to add to the indignity and the atrocity of what happened, the five soldiers that were arrested in connection with the crime were later released because of a lack of evidence. But the story did not end there. What occurred following that in the Christian community in Poso, Indonesia, is almost amazingly hard to believe. Let me read for you what occurred amongst the believers there. The deaths have brought unity to the Christian churches in Poso, Indonesia. And the lives of the girls have encouraged believers to be strong in the faith. Their parents have released forgiveness to the murderers of their daughters. They believe that it is God who will judge them. Just stop for a moment. How could shocked, grieving, horrified parents even begin to have such a spirit? Well, one of the fathers, a man by the name of Marcus Sambui, responded in this way. He said, I am really angry, but the Holy Spirit touched my heart and changed me. I forgive them just as Jesus has forgiven my sins. That's the only answer, isn't it? It's the only answer as to how parents could forgive something like that. There is a historian by the name of Michael Hart, and this is what he has to say about the uniqueness of Christianity. He says that Christianity enjoys its greatest uniqueness in this. For no other great religion tells its adherents to love their enemies. In most religions, he writes, revenge is not only justified, but it is commanded. But because we as Christians have been greatly forgiven and loved by our Creator, we can forgive and even love our enemies. There is a wonderful principle that is taught throughout the Bible. And I would put this principle in this way. 
The experience of love and forgiveness enables the expression of love and forgiveness. Let me say that again. The experience of love and forgiveness enables the expression of love and forgiveness. Now, we know that Jesus taught this. He taught that uh, loving God and others is tied to our own sense of being forgiven. Uh, Remember the sinful woman that came before him in contrast to the Pharisee who condemned her. And Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. But he said, the one who is forgiven little loves little. And it is our own sense uh, of the fact that we have been so wonderfully forgiven that gives us the ability to love God and to love others. One of the great pastors of um, our recent generation who is now with the Lord, who influenced millions and millions of Christians was John Stott. And he said something one time that has powerfully impacted me. He, He said this, Now no one is free who is unforgiven. He said, If I were not sure of God's mercy and forgiveness, I could not look you in the face or more important, God. And how absolutely true that is. Now this morning, because that is true, I want us to look at a message that I'm entitling simply this morning, How to Experience God's Forgiveness. And this message uh, comes from perhaps the greatest chapter in all of the Bible on forgiveness. It is Psalm 51. And I want you to turn there with me, and I want you to notice today, as I read the first six verses, that when it comes to experiencing God's forgiveness, there is God's part, and then there is our part. Now, as we look at verses 1 and 2, and that's going to be the focus of our message, we see that God has made provision for our forgiveness. And that's where we will spend our time. But then in verses 3 to 6, we see that we must make confession to receive forgiveness. And how amazing it is that David begins with the first. We would expect him to start with our part, that we need to come and and make confession in order to be forgiven. But instead, he starts with God's part. Because he so wants to encourage us about God that it would stimulate us to make the confession that he himself made. Now remember, David wrote this magnificent prayer after his greatest sins. Lust, adultery, cover-up, and murder. They are all the background for what he writes here. Let's begin and read the superscription together. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. 
According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Let's take a moment, shall we, and pray together. Lord God, today is Communion Sunday. Today is a day in which we as a collective body will privately take time to confess our sins to you. Today we come to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus Christ, by his provision on the cross of Calvary, has enabled all of us to be forgiven. And because we are forgiven and loved, we now can extend love and forgiveness to others. We can be free from the hurts and the wrongs and the failures of the past. And we can experience the liberty of living in love and forgiveness towards one another. And so this of all Sundays is a Sunday in which we come with grateful, loving, open hearts to thank you for what you have done, to rejoice and revel in it, and then to leave from this place feeling the cleansing power of Christ once again that we might live as his people in this sinful, wicked world. Thank you, Lord, for what you are about to teach us. For Jesus' sake, amen. In these opening two verses, what we discover here is that God has made provision for our forgiveness. We might call these opening two verses the reasons for forgiveness. And then in verses 3 to 6, which we can look at at another time, we have the requirements for forgiveness. And I want you to notice that David gives to us two reasons why it is that God has made forgiveness. Number one, God's attributes provide our forgiveness. Let me just ask a question this morning. What would you do if you coveted uh, another man's wife? took her, committed adultery with her, covered it up for about a year, and when your cover-up did not work, you murdered her husband. Can you ask me today, how could you possibly even live with yourself? How could you ever begin to think that you could ever make amends for such actions? Now, David fully understood that only God could give him any hope. 
And so as he began to write about the aftermath of what God had done for him, he revealed that in his conviction he had cast himself upon God's character. You see, what David knew is that God's attributes predispose him not just to forgive our sin, but to actually delight in forgiving sin. Isn't that an incredible thought this morning? That God not only is a God who does forgive sin, but His attributes are such that He delights to forgive sin. In the darkness of David's despair, there were three stars that shone forth from the very heart of God that are the very thing that give sinners hope in the midst of their sin. Let's look at these attributes, shall we? The first one is grace. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it says, Have mercy on me, O God. But I like the alternate that is put in the marginal note. By the way, do you read the marginal notes in your Bible? I hope that you do, because they give us greater insight. In the marginal note of the ESV in verse 1, an alternate rendering of, Have mercy on me, O God, is, Be gracious to me, O God. I like that rendering much better this morning because this uh, expression, be gracious to me, O God, is the normal word in our Bibles in the Old Testament for the grace of God. It is the normal word for God's unearned favor. Now, let me read for you one of the best definitions that I have ever read of what grace is. Here it is. Grace was used of a superior, giving to an inferior what he or she does not deserve because the superior, out of his own goodwill, decides to condescend to the inferior and show him or her kindness. Let me read that great definition again. Here's what grace is. It was a word that was used of a superior giving to an inferior what he or she does not deserve because the superior, out of his own goodwill, decides to condescend to the inferior and show him or her kindness. That's our God. That's what His grace means. Now there's a second attribute here that is in the heart of God. And it is the attribute of love. David says, according to your steadfast love. Now that is one word in the Old Testament. Our King James Bibles often use the word loving kindness, according to your loving kindness. But in the Old Testament, it is the normal word for agape love. So that when we come to agape love in the New Testament, and we understand what that is, that is the same word as this word loving kindness in the Old Testament. It is a reference to unconditional love that gives to the undeserving. Do you know it is Romans 5.8 in action? Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows His love toward us, 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is agape love. It is what we would call from the Old Testament loving kindness. And then there's a third attribute of God that forgiveness is always based on. It is the attribute of mercy. David says, according to your abundant mercy. Uh, The phrase here refers to tender mercies. Uh, Some translations describe it as according to your compassion. It is the normal word in the Old Testament for mercy, and it describes a very, very deep pity that causes someone to withhold punishment. That's the concept here. Now, we need to understand this. That according to the Old Testament, adultery and murder were capital offenses. So David deserved stoning. If you've ever watched a stoning on television, as I watched recently, it is a very gruesome and ugly thing. I was watching a a, a mystery program one day, and it was a a program that that was in the Middle East, and, and a woman had been caught in adultery. And there were some Europeans that were present, and all of a sudden, they saw this woman being chased through the streets, and and they grabbed a hold of her and began to beat her. And the one European woman tried to go to her rescue, but the mob was too great, and ultimately they took her down the road and began to stone her with stones. And of course, the TV cameras went away in this movie so that we could not see the gruesome act. Now that's what David deserved. He deserved stoning by a mob, not forgiving. And yet here in this verse, what he cries out is, O God, deal with me according to your great pity, not as I deserve. That's what he was crying out to God for. Do you realize that Psalm 51.1 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament? In my reference Bible, I did not see John 3.16 listed as a reference here to Psalm 51.1, but it ought to be a cross-reference. Let's just think of it in this way. For God so loved the world, that's unfailing love that He gave His only begotten Son, that is grace, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, that's great compassion, that's mercy. This is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the world, that is unfailing love, that He gave His only begotten Son, that is grace, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. That's great compassion and mercy. You see, long before John 3.16 became one of the most loved verses in all the Bible, David knew the God that would make that verse possible. 
Even though there was no Calvary for David to flee to, David pled the attributes of God that one day would make the blood of Calvary such a wonderful refuge for sinners like him. Think of it with me this morning. The attributes of God that provide your forgiveness and mine. Grace. Love. And mercy. Now, David says in these opening verses that there is another reason why God forgives. And the second reason is this God's actions are to forgive. Now, please follow this with me this morning. God always acts in accord with His nature. Therefore, who God is, determine what God does. That is so very important for all of us. Who God is determines what God does. My old professor, Erwin Lutzer, is retiring after 30-some years as the pastor of Moody Church. He one time said this, There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. How much sin is there in your past? How much sin is there in my past? Says Pastor Lutzer, there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Now whenever God forgives, there are three actions that he performs that only he can perform. Three uh, actions that the Lord performs on the heart of every sinner and in their life that God alone is able to perform. Let's look at them together, all right? First of all, he erases the record book that is against us. He erases the record book that is against us. At the end of verse 1, David says to the Lord, Now, Lord, knowing who you are, and knowing what I do not deserve, would you blot out my transgressions? All throughout the Bible, the Bible speaks of a record book of sins that God is keeping on each person containing all the wrong that we have done. Do you know Moses was the very first one to refer to this record book? At the golden calf incident when God was threatening to wipe out the whole nation of Israel and start over with Moses, Moses pled before the Lord and he said to him, God, instead of doing that, Blot me out of your book which you have written. And Moses is the very first one to refer to this record book of sins. A little bit later as we move along in our Bibles, Daniel the prophet saw a vision of the end of time. He saw the Ancient of Days taking his seat, and all mankind was brought before him, and the books were opened. Uh, would you keep your finger here in Psalm 51, and turn to Daniel 7, 
And let me read for you verses 9 and 10 as Daniel picked up this theme that Moses had begun about the record book that God keeps on the life of every person. Look what Daniel wrote in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. Look what he says. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its, heat, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now follow along to the end of your Bibles. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. And notice how John, in a vision of heaven, very similar to what Daniel saw, refers once again to this great record book that God keeps on the life of every person. Look at verses 11 and 12 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. Can you imagine what this means for us? Over the years of our lives, as our sins accumulate, one by one they are recorded in God's perfect mind in the book He is keeping on each of us. The Bible says that one day the court will be in session, the judge will be seated, the books will be opened, and all humanity will be judged on the things written in their book. Imagine this morning every wrong thought, every careless word, every selfish deed written down. Can you imagine getting an eraser and trying with all your might to erase the sins in your book? And try as you might, you cannot erase the record because it is written in permanent ink. And yet, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that when God forgives, He blots out every charge. He erases it as though it were never there. You see, the reason for this open book and a pen with fountain ink and you see the reason why it is clear and clean and spotless because that's what God does when he forgives he erases the record book against us notice the second thing that David 
knew he would do. Secondly, he washes the stain within us. He washes the stain within us. David says in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Do you know the, the word that David uses here for wash means to tread or pummel? It is describing washing clothes the old-fashioned way. I'm not going to ask anyone to identify themselves this morning. But if I were to ask, how many of you have ever used a washboard? You would know exactly what David is talking about. I've seen washboards. I've never used one. But I know how they work. You wash clothes by beating them against the metal ridges of the washboard and then treading them in the water. Um, last week, Garen Brondike was here. Just ask him if that's as good as what Whirlpool does for us today. I think he will say no. David is describing washing a stain from clothes the old-fashioned way. Now, I don't need to remind you that the Bible pictures sin as an ugly stain on the heart that makes us filthy and defiled before God. Can you imagine going to a shop like I was at this week and asking them, bring out one of your filthiest shop rags, all stained with oil and grease. And then I'm going to go and, and get a, a washboard, and I'm going to try to wash that grease, oil-stained rag white in that washboard. And all of us this morning would know, impossible, impossible. And yet that is exactly what God says it is like, trying to wash the filth of our sin from our hearts. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 2.22. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord. Listen to what God says about our self-efforts. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, says the Lord. But would you listen to what the God of grace, love, and mercy can do? He says this in Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as what? As wool. As wool. What we could never do in a thousand years with a greasy, oil-stained rag on a washboard with, with lye and soap. God says, I will make your heart like it is white as snow, like it is the white of a wool's lamb. What a wonderful thing it is to be forgiven by the living God.
Here's the third thing that God does. Thirdly, He removes the barrier between us. He removes the barrier between us. David says in verse 2, Cleanse me from my sin. Now the word cleanse here that is used in this picture was the process that someone with a defiling disease like leprosy had to go through in order to be declared clean by God. Now, you may remember, and sometime you may want to turn back to Leviticus 13 and 14. I will not ask you to go there this morning, but let me remind you what it was like for someone who had the skin disease of leprosy. They had to live outside of the camp where they were cut off from everyone else because their disease was a barrier to social contact. Lepers would live in colonies, and to keep from spreading their disease, they would have to cry out so that everyone would stay away, unclean, unclean. You recall the ten lepers whom Jesus approached in a leper colony in the first century, and how they spoke to him and, and, and cried out for mercy. There must have been something that they had heard about him that when they saw him, instead of crying unclean, they cried out to Jesus for mercy. If a leper was ultimately healed of his leprosy, here's what had to happen. He had to be sprinkled with the blood of an animal. He had to shave his head, skin to skin. He had to wash his clothes and then bathe his body in water. Then he would appear before the priest who would examine him and pronounce him clean. And only then could that leper come back into the camp. Now why did God require that for someone who had a disease that was not even their fault? It's because over and over again the Bible teaches us that leprosy is a picture of sin that puts a barrier between us and God. And the barrier is so high and the barrier is so great that no matter how much we may try to do, we cannot dismantle that barrier. Every now and then here in the UP, you know that our nursing homes will be quarantined. And the reason they are quarantined is because there are viruses that are, are spreading in the community, perhaps a virus like I have contacted this week. And the officials at the nursing home know that if the older people in that place contract that virus, it could kill them. And so quarantine words are put up, and if you have a cold or a flu of any type, you cannot go in. If you are a family member and, and you're healthy, you are still required to put a mask on your face so that you do not spread the virus, or if there is a virus going around the nursing home, you do not breathe it in and get sick yourself. You know what the Bible is saying through all of this? The Bible is saying that God has a mask on. And that mask says to you and to me, do not come near. 
You have something far worse than a virus that could kill someone physically. You have the virus of sin. And that virus of sin quarantines us from God. And it is only when God cleanses us in the hospital called forgiveness that He lets us into His presence. The reason that He is willing to do that is because He is a God of grace, love, and mercy. And because of what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary, God will remove the barrier between us. This is not only what it means to be forgiven. This is what God has actually done for everyone who knows Jesus. One of the greatest experiences of my life was an experience of forgiveness. I have shared the details with you on more than one occasion. I won't go into the details. But all I can say to you is that I had hurt a couple in my former church very, very deeply by something that I had said. They would not speak to me. They would not answer the phone. They would not come to our church. As far as it looked like to me, my relationship with them would be over, and I did not know what to do. I wanted to deny what I had done. It was not a big thing. It was really, in many ways, a small thing. And I wanted to say, why are they making such a big deal out of this? It's not that bad. But I turned to a mentor of mine, a retired pastor, who is now in heaven. When I shared with him what I had done, you know what he said? He said what Nathan said to David. He said, you are the man. You are the man. And you sinned. It was wrong. I said to him, they will not answer their phone. There's no way that I can even speak to them. What can I do to make amends? He said, this is what I would do. I would sit down and I would write the most thorough letter of apology that you possibly can. Take all of the blame upon yourself and send it to them. I did. I sat down and I wrote the best letter of apology I knew. I made no excuses. I told them how sorry I was. I asked them to forgive me. I will never forget the day Never, ever will I forget the day when the phone rang. I picked it up. It was Harold. He said, Pastor Brian, we've read your letter. You have done what you should do. I said to my wife, now we should do what we ought to do. He said these words to me over the phone. We forgive you. We will never bring it up again. And we will treat you 
as though it never happened. And that's exactly what they did till the day they died. First, I had her funeral service. Second, when he died, I had his funeral service. And it was one of the most thrilling experiences that I have ever experienced. Oh, what wonder in those words. We forgive you. We will never bring it up again. And we will treat you as though it never happened. And if that's what human forgiveness can do, imagine how much greater is God's forgiveness. He erases the record. He washes the stain. He dismantles the barrier. And it's all because he's a God of grace, love, and mercy. Can you find forgiveness and freedom in that? Can you? Of course you can. Of course you can. Let's bow together and let's thank you. Father, it is only because we have experienced love and forgiveness that we are enabled to express love and forgiveness. It is only because we know that we have been forgiven that we can look one another in the eye, that we can lift up our heads and stand before you because of what you have done for each one of us. Lord, the hurts and the wounds that we have absorbed from others we can release. We can show pity and compassion. In some cases, Lord, we can leave people to your just judgment because we know how much you have done for us. Lord, the greatest thing when the Bible says, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, it says with all humility, 
lowliness and meekness. And Lord, for any one of us who understands what it truly means for God to have forgiven us, when we are in our right minds, operating as we know the grace, love, and mercy of God should cause us to operate, we know it must always begin with humility, lowliness, and meekness. And so today, Lord, it is in that spirit that we prepare to come around the table of the Lord. And we know that Jesus has given us only one ongoing ordinance, only one ceremony that he saw fit to take place in the life of the Christian over and over and over again. And that ceremony is the Lord's Supper. Because when we come to this table and, and we remember the broken body of Jesus and we remember His shed blood, we are coming to the very heart of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Father, today, if we could display all the sins that are in this room, they would be a very ugly picture. If we could see what, what you have saved us from, we would respond in, in horror and our minds would be revulsed. But in great gladness and in thanksgiving, we thank you that that is not what you see. But you see what we are about to partake of. You see the cleansing blood of Christ and the perfect righteousness that he has clothed us with so that we stand like Him before you today. It gladdens our hearts. It makes us very thankful. It humbles us. It's the very thing that changes us to love you more and more. Bless us now as we come around your very precious table. Speak to that heart that is conscious of failure. Speak to that non-believer who does not know the cleansing power of Christ. Draw them to yourself in this time of worship, celebration, and joy. For Jesus' sake, amen.